Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show takes guests in the barrel, behind the scenes with the people who've been there, done that, and seen the results. Revenue Builders covers best practices for scaling and growing your business while sharing the pitfalls to avoid. Great conversation, solid interviews, tangible takeaways to help you succeed. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon. I'm here with the big man, Johnny Kaplan. Cap, how are you this morning? Good, brother. Good. Really looking forward to this one, dude. Hey, Cap, our guest today has been recognized by the Forbes Midas list for 10 years. For those that don't know, the Forbes Midas list ranks the top 100 venture capitalists in the world. And in 2019, Neeraj cracked the top 10 by reaching number nine in the world. Prior to that, in 2017, he was named to the top 20 venture capitalists worldwide by the New York Times. Neeraj is a general partner at Battery Ventures where he's had many companies complete an IPO, including Bizarre Voice, Coupa, Guidewire, Marketo, Nutanix, Omniture, RealPage, and Wayfair. He's also had many other companies that were acquired. A Place for Mom, App Dynamics, Bright Tree, Chef, Glassdoor, Customer, Ops Genie, Stella Connect, and BSS Monitoring. And Cap, here's why we're fortunate enough to have an extremely talented person like Neeraj on the podcast. He's currently on a wide variety of boards, Braze, Catchpoint, Compt, Data IQ, Level AI, Log Rocket, Pendo, Rife Health, Repeat, Scopely, Shortcut, Sprinkler, Telium, Wonderkind, Workado, and Yesware. Wow, Cap, I'm, dude, I'm out of breath just mentioning it. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> so, Cap, please welcome my good friend and hockey fan, the very accomplished Niraj Agarwal. Niraj, it's uh, great, great to see you again. And uh, we know how busy your schedule is. I, I can't, I don't even know how you do it, but thanks for uh, squeezing in the time for us, brother. It's really good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Happy to do it. Yeah. And you're ready to jump in, bud? Let's do it. Okay. Looking back on all those investments that you made in startups, and I don't, you don't need to name company names or anything, but what do you think of the, let's say, top three items that has separated the successful companies you've invested in from the not successful companies? Is it is it product? Is it sales, marketing, finance, the TAM, competitive product life cycle? What is it? Yeah, John, it's a great question. There's, there's a lot of dimensions that go into investing. You know, at a high level, I think of there being four key dimensions in making that decision. First is market, second is team, third is technology, and the fourth is the deal itself. You know, kind of what is the, the terms of the deal? And within market, that includes things like competitive landscape, market size. And in the venture world, there's a, there's a lot of debate around, hey, is it really the market or is the team? What's the ratio? Clearly, you need some combination of both of those. And I will tell you that in my experience, it's probably a little bit more market. But if you want to have a great outcome, you need great marketing, great team. 
to come together at the right time. And, you know, a lot of folks will talk about, oh, how big is this market? Um, and I've generally found that that's actually, it's an interesting question, but it's not really predictive of success. What you really want to know is what is the inflection point in this market? When is this going to happen? And can I get, can I see my way getting to 50 to 100 million in scale? If I can get there, I can figure out what to do from there. You know, think about climbing the mountaintops. Yeah. The, and, and the challenge is uh, often is if you invest too early, you know, you've got a good idea, but you run out of money before the inflection point happens. And if you invest too late, somebody else captured the market. And so having a sense of like the timing is really important. And like most things in life, you know, luck has a lot to do with it. But thinking about that timing and there's a bunch of things that I do to try to figure out if, you know, now is the time that I can talk to you about. But those that's a high level framework I use. Um, and I think it's uh, when you can get both market and team right, you're, you're, you're in a good spot. And then when you think about timing, sometimes it could be like a product life cycle. I think like PTC, when we went, we came in, the market was already there. Everybody had a CAD system, but a lot of the vendors were old in the tooth with old technology. So there's a yes. new technology or you take Snowflake. You know, there was a lot of established vendors already, but the cloud came along and it opened up, you know, that inflection point that you're talking about. So do you think about the advent of new technologies to displace some of the old technologies as an inflection point? Definitely. And, and um, John, you and I have worked a little bit with John Chambers, and he's got a really good phrase on this in terms of capturing markets in transition. And transition can mean multiple things. Transition can mean literally going from pen and paper to something automated, which we've seen in a lot of vertical software companies. But it also could mean uh, transitioning from legacy products like client server to the cloud, like a, you know, kind of a Siebel to Salesforce type transition. Um, and, and many times it, it also means like a transition from something like Excel to something productized, you know, whether it might be uh, a BI system or a commission planning system. Uh, we've got something in a data science space called data IQ where people can do data science, but like this is a nice product layer. So it's moving from a tool that wasn't designed for it to a platform that's specifically for that. And so there's lots of market transitions. Another interesting one is clearly looking at what's happening with the underlying uh, compute resources, storage, cloud architecture. And I think Snowflake's a great example of separating compute and storage and, and what they were able to, to power in terms of a whole new wave. But Spotting these transitions and being there at the right point is, is I think, a, a really key component here. I think the hard part must be when there's not an established market and a new technology comes along. So it's like this new technology, you know, a solution looking for a problem. And that must be the harder one to guess. When is that really going to take with, with end users? Yeah, and it's new markets. Um, are, are, are intellectually, they're really fun to think about, but you have to have this perspective that, you know, it's, these are new budget line items. These may or may not easily get kind of rolled out. And so being, uh, being I'd say extra cautious or extra thoughtful in the diligence process is important. Like I'll give you an example. We, we did an investment in a, a new product area in product management software, you know, broadly speaking, these are companies like Amplitude and Pendo. And until the last five years, product managers really didn't spend anything on software. And right. in fact, what they would do is they, they would have whiteboards and they would say, okay, we're going to build all this stuff. And then the engineering team would go around, they build all the things. And um, nobody would ask like, hey, did that feature even get used? Right? And nobody would sit around and say, wait a minute, 
these software developers, which by the way, I think is the scariest resource in our economy is software yeah. development. They're being used to build these things and no one's using it. Well, why is that, right? And so we said, hey, there's gotta be an analytical uh, approach to this where there's more accountability. And we saw this exact trend happen in marketing where we were investors in companies like Marketo, the exact target and Sprinkler that went, that field went from gut driven to data driven and created all of this, uh, all of this kind of um, equity, you know, market cap, if in essence, and you know, winners. We thought the same thing could happen in a product, but it is a new market. And so you have to be, uh, have to have that perspective. Like, is this really going to happen? When is it going to happen? But I find new markets to be very interesting. I, there's a lot of markets that don't happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's usually it's a timing question. Most things will happen over time, but like getting the timing right is really, it's really tricky, but it's also the fun part. Yeah. Johnny, can I get a little selfish here for a second? Yeah, sure. If you go okay, so, you, so I need some advice. Big man's jumping in. I need some advice. So new markets, like you just got me spinning off a top. Talk to me a little bit. I'm jumping the gun on this one, but like how are, give me an assessment of blockchain. So like I understand what's, you know, all the headlines are around crypto but I'm most interested in understanding the un underlying architecture and where would you put that from a, from what you just said, a new market, an existing market, like how would you analyze that? A, a company that was really maybe uh, building themselves on block blockchain technology and bringing that technology to applications, to markets, and in, in different ways. Give me your stomach on that. Yeah, this is being selfish. This is being selfish. I will tell you right up front. I'm not. I'm not a deep expert in this area, but I'll tell you from my experience. Um, there's both. There's kind of a B2B aspect and a B2C. And in the B2B yeah. world, you're looking for, hey, what um, workflows can you better automate? Where can you add value? You know, you guys know better than anyone that you're either adding, helping people grow revenue, reduce costs, reduce risk. Um, in, in the B2B world. And there are some good applications for, for blockchain and um, being able to have transactions that are non-changeable in the future, whether it's being the real estate market um, or, or things like that around, around the B2B side. Um, on the B2C side, clearly blockchain enables the entire kind of cryptocurrency side. And, and you know, it's not, it's not an area where I feel like we've totally figured out great use cases Obviously, there's the one that's kind of the you know the legitimate use case of like you're transferring money to people who shouldn't get money. But you know there is a, we recently made an investment in a remittance-oriented company where they are helping with sending money to family members abroad and yes. folks like Western Union and the like. They take a very large percentage of, of the transfer amount, and so we think there's an opportunity to innovate there where you can use blockchain as an enabling technology for that type of flow. But I, I think we'll see a lot more blockchain being used around uh, uh, transaction capturing and, and having it being open and non-changeable going forward. So I think that's going to be a good use case. But clearly, it's an early, early, you know, crypto, broadly speaking, is early. Blockchain, I think, is less uh, uh, risky in that sense and that it is a great enabling technology. But some of the recent headlines around crypto show how early that space really is. Awesome. Thank you for that. Okay, Johnny, back to the track. Well, just going back to, you know, the original question, if you have you seen like in some of the companies that were successful or not successful, like the product carry the salespeople or the sales. Yeah, great question. The product, or the product was okay. The sales force was okay, but the market was so big, they kind of grew, you know, 
or hung on to the market and, you know, kind of looked like they were successful? Have you seen some of that? Yeah, John, this is a great question. And, and, and this is also an area that's evolved a lot in my 20 years. Um, and you know, I'll give you, I'll, I'll kind of take a step back here. So if you look at in the, I'd say, client server era uh, and before of software, you could have an okay product and great sales and build a great outcome. And over many, over like decades, and, and part of it was those companies grew and they acquired other products that were never really integrated with each other, but the distribution, the sales team was so good at selling it. They could sell product one and product two and keep, keep the dream going, you know? Right. And so I would say for that wave of software, sales uh, processes were, were really critical. Like, you know, look at a company like Oracle, I would argue, may not have had the best database, but they won based on sales execution. And, and, and uh, you've seen a lot, of, a lot of successes. You know, I've involved in companies that had okay product, but had great sales and, and made it happen. The, the shift really happened around the cloud where when software was being sold in a way that was being, uh, you had to renew it to the same extent. So you had to have real value being delivered. The idea of shelfware no longer could exist. You couldn't hide around that. So sales teams were able to sell, but maybe if it wasn't used, it was still okay. Um, now that's not the case. So your, your minimum product level has increased dramatically. Like if you do not have a top one or two product in a space, in the medium term, I think a sales team will have a hard time executing. They need a good enough product, but they still need to be excellent at sales. Now, you, you actually have something happening that's a little bit different where sometimes a great product will help a company get to 50, 100 million with okay sales. And growth covers up a lot of sins mm-hmm. and a lot of operating uh, uh, cadence in a business. And for you, the sales leaders that might be listening, usually when you're growing really quickly, is the best time to ask the question, what's really not working? Because everyone's high-fiving, you know, things are great, going to presence club. But I can guarantee you, I've seen it now so many times that the foundation is being built at that moment. And when the bumps come, the foundation is not strong and it crumbles quickly. Yes. And so you need good product and, and you need great sales. If, you, if great sales didn't matter, you wouldn't have these issues. You wouldn't have these bumps where companies all of a sudden hit this massive inner pocket. Um, and so they need to build the right kind of sales processes and discipline. And ultimately, great companies are built on great product and great sales. You can kind of fake it for a while now on, on the sales side, but um, the longer the longer you wait to put in the fundamentals, the harder it is to do later. And the more, um, I would say, the more uh, of an air pocket there is for a company when they put it in. Yeah. And is the reason that you look for such a large TAM going to the last point or last question that I asked where... The product was okay. The sales were okay, but they were in such a huge market that was growing so fast. They kind of got pulled along and then they looked like it was a successful company or successful outcome at some point. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that the, because the, first of all, every company from within looks a little messier than, than people think. Like every company's got issues, right? And so like, um, you know, if everyone's executing, if you're executing well, you might execute an eight, not a 10. And like other people executed a six, but the so there's always some issues that the large TAM and the right inflection points pull you along really nicely, and so that covers up some of the mistakes, but it won't it won't cover up for the foundational mistakes that will be exposed you know down the road. That's what you got to get right. Yeah, exactly. Now, when you think back at uh, without having to name any names, you your most successful company, 
you know, what, what do you think was the biggest takeaway from, from that for you? I, I think the, and it's changing over the years, you know, the, the relative emphasis between product and sales has shifted a little bit more of having the necessary level product. The entrepreneurs that are, that are leading these companies, I'd say that's, a, that's something that's also changed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm rapidly approaching my 50th birthday, which is hard to believe. But when I started at 27, the average founder was probably in their mid-30s. And so as I've gotten older, closer to 50, the average founder is actually getting younger. They're now in their late 20s. Right. Often very technical. Um, maybe sometimes I've never managed another human being. It's really interesting to think about that. Like the great product, great technical instincts. Um, and usually they have very good product instincts to you know over over time, but their team building instincts are relatively raw. Um, their hiring instincts are, are raw, and they need to they need to develop in that area. And so what I would say the, the lessons I've learned now are, are people who can really grow into the CEO role is really important. And, and what I mean by that is, like I wrote a blog post on it called Founder to CEO Transitions. You know, when, when, a, when a founder, usually a co-founder, becomes a CEO, they're the CEO because they started the business. They're not the CEO because anyone would actually hire them to be a CEO. And as I said, many times, they never even managed another community. Right. But their ability to learn on that side and, and, and also have the appreciation that, wow, actually managing people is a skill in itself. Leading people, holding them accountable, getting 150% out of somebody is a skill. Frankly, I don't, I don't think I have it. I know, John, you got it, right? But that's a skill that they can develop to the best of their abilities. And I'd say that's the thing I look for now is, hey, can this person, they can get us to like 20 to 50, but I'm usually betting on that person to get to 100, hundreds of revenue. And right. that requires them managing a 500 or 1,000 person organization. And can you see them grow into that ability over time? So what do you look for? How do you figure that out? Right. I look for empathetic leaders. I look for people who are coachable. I look at the quality of questions they ask. At some point, they need to turn on their HR muscle when I mean recruiting and uh, leading a team. That's yeah, not an easy step. Definitely skill. on recruiting. Yeah. Sometimes and that's, that's what I look for now. Yeah. Yeah. And on the flip side of that question, without mentioning any companies, what'd you learn from your greatest disappointment where you thought, oh, this is going to be a grand slam home run? And then all of a sudden the thing, you know, tanked on you at some point. What would you learn from that? Was it just the same thing? With the same I would say it's, it's a little bit in, in the same. In word. I would do two things. One is um, sometimes so, there's two types of failures in the venture world. One is like you bet on something and like the market never really happened. Like, you know, an extreme example could be like, hey, let's go mine asteroids in space. Like, okay, that market never happened. It may happen. But anyone who invested in that thing, like never, they haven't made money. Um, you know, version one of clean tech many years ago, no one really made money. Like the whole category didn't work. And you feel, okay, look, we were wrong about market. And it's, you don't actually lose sleep about that decision as much. The one that hurts the most is when you invested in a space and you might've picked a company who at the time was number one, or you thought they were number one. And then some company that hasn't even started yet, somehow comes up and beats them. And you're like, oh my God, we were right about the thesis. Mm. We were early. And we still didn't win, you know, we were number one or number two in the market. And if you're not number one or two at this point, you're basically wasting your time and you you should go do something else, you know? Um, And so that's, those are the ones that are really hard. And and the reason you often don't end up being number one or two is a few key decisions that the founder ultimately needs to make around product instincts, like architectural instincts on, hey, let's build it this way, not that way. And also a couple of key hiring decisions around senior executives. 
where every mistake sets you back like 12 or 18 months. And as you're competing, every company is making a few mistakes, but the difference between number one and number two and number three is really one or two less mistakes. Yeah. And that's, that's painful when you see that happen. And, you know, it happens to all of us, but, but hopefully you win more than you lose. Neeraj, that feeds right into your market team technology and then the deal you're talking about under the team. So let's say that I'm out there looking at a company. I have a young CEO. What should I be looking for potentially or what do you look for as it relates to the rest of the team? So you talked about those people skills and somebody in their, you know, early 20s, they just might not have the experience for that. What's the next, what is the next type of person you would expect to see on that leadership team? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. And it's, um, in general, what I find is that it, it evolves over time. You end up having, um, this skill is like, it's one and you, it doesn't show up magically one day. Right. Yep. And so um, I hesitate because I will say in, in general, it takes somebody three tries to figure out a, a leadership team that is yeah. the right flavor. Yeah. And, and so they may not all be there day one. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Like they're solving the problems that they have today. Um, in fact, the founder may not even appreciate what leaders do. I, I've had a company, I've had a founder that I work with. He said, Hey, Neeraj, help me understand. What exactly does a manager or a VP do day to day? They're like, they thought you could build a business with just individual contributors. You could build like hundreds of engineers, hundreds of like, why do you need these other people? Right. And, and so it's it's that that level of understanding is where you're sometimes starting from. And so if you start from there to get to a strong CEO, you know, there's there's an evolution process. And so I think it's really having a judgment call on that person's ability to grow as a leader, not necessarily who they've hired at that point, but who they yeah. could hire in the future. And so they're coachable. They know what the gaps are. They're yeah. asking good questions about what does great look like. Niraj, what's amazing to me is how many technical founders I meet that really don't have a great appreciation for the sales motion, yes. but in their minds, because they started a company and they are the ones that are typically the sellers, they have trouble translating how a lot of that stuff that comes naturally to them, how it does, because they have such unbelievable domain expertise on the product, doesn't necessarily transfer to the rest of an organization. What type of advice do you find giving that you're giving to technical founders around just the, the, the game of sales? Yeah. Great question. No, I, I, um, many years ago, I wrote a blog called uh, T2D3 that talked about a growth yeah. pattern. And in it, I mentioned, I think there's a, there's a magic moment for a company when a founder is actually not involved in sales. And you might be like, wait, what is that? How could that be? Like, you know, why isn't that happening? Why would you want that? And they say, look, to have a scalable, scalable company, you need a system, right? And you need to be able to translate, you know, what's in a founder's mind to mere mortals, you know, who can repeat the key parts and make, make, and make the sale happen. Um, and I call it hero selling because a lot of founders will come in the last minute, make the deal happen. They can, they can, they can articulate a vision that is very intoxicating for a potential buyer. And like, okay, I get it. I think this person is amazing. I'm going to bet. That. And that's, that might need to happen in that first year or two. But what yeah. you really want 
is when great reps, and I actually don't even think you're great reps, I call it your, your B reps. When your B rep or even your newly ramped rep, when they can start producing, then you've got something that's, that, that's scalable. Yeah. And so if you can articulate that, then you say, okay, wait a minute, then really this is all about sales enablement and trying to make sure as a founder, I'm not carrying the, the quarter. Because I'm carrying the quarter, it's only a matter of time that we hit the, the, until we hit the wall. And so that requires systems and, and uh, translation of what's in their mind. And you, normally what it requires, honestly, is to dumb it all down. But you got to get it simple, straightforward. Here's how you do it. And then it's repeatable. So, um, but it's, it takes an appreciation. And, and the thing you said also about like, you know, founders think generally if they build it, like people will buy it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, think, I think McMahon taught me this. I think he might've said, no software has ever been purchased without a champion. I think he might've said that to me, John. Yeah. Years ago. yeah. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's an appreciation of like, oh, okay, that's really how sales happen. You actually have to convince a champion first. And then they convince other people in the org. And so there's a human aspect to this. It's a, you know, and product emotion skews this a little bit. There's a little bit of this happening now where, where people aren't acting so, but to grow it, you still need to have the champion and the people to expand. And so I think the, the light bulb of understanding like the role of sales and the importance of sales is, is really important for technical founders. And you know, I would say maybe 50% of them really appreciate it. And, and it's a very high number don't ever appreciate it. And I think those are the ones that have hard time scaling their businesses. Yeah, I think they think that everybody's going to buy their their product or their baby, so to speak. Yeah. And maybe someday that'll happen. But in a startup, you have to like pick your fights where you're going to be most successful and where the product's going to drive the highest customer value so that you can in exchange get the highest monetary value. And too many of them, from what I've seen, take more of a shotgun approach to everybody's going to sell my product instead of like a rifle approach to where's our best fit and where am I going to get the highest productivity out of my sales force? Yeah. And John, the other thing I'd add is, you know, um, we have to think about the backdrop, right? So we've had a bull market for 12 years. And so a lot of these folks have never seen tough sales cycles where you do need to justify why am I doing this project and not, not the other project. And when, when experimental budgets are growing like they have in the last 10 years, a lot of things get tried out, right? In this environment that we're entering, like you now, the art of sales is, is more important than it was, you know, a few years ago because there's going to be scrutiny in all these decisions. And so having somebody who can connect the dots between business problem, the value property or product, an ROI, dealing with CFO scrutiny, that's now gone from like, okay, it was kind of a nice to have to like, super important right now. And so I think, um, you know, the, the importance of overall sales process and foundation is just grown. Super important, even for renewals, right? When yeah. <laughs> If I'm trying to cut costs as a CEO, I'm going down a list of everything that we were purchasing and it's going to yeah. get renewed. And I'm going to come ask somebody, tell me about the value you're getting out of this product. And if they start to stumble, blah, 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 psh, I'm cutting it. It's gone. It's not getting the renewal. So it's even important on the post-sale side. Totally agree. Yeah. Now, would you also, what about COVID, Niraj? Would you not say that from a bull market perspective, I know the markets did pretty well from companies and execution and skittishness, because I really love what you said. It's like, we've been a little bit spoiled, <clears throat> but there was a major blip in that 10 years, right? The, that blip was COVID. How do you assess that? Like, 
I, you know, I've, I've heard companies talk about from capital markets or what have you, the COVID bump, like yes. a lot of people got the COVID bump from an expect standpoint. And that I'm sure that that has covered up some challenges in other areas, but what is your, like, if I'm looking at a company and you said, Hey, you know, look at how, if they haven't had experience with a difficult market, you know, in the last 12 years, we've had a bull market. Where would you put COVID in there? And what would you look for to make sure that you're not, that something's not covered up? Is that, I asked, I said a bunch of words, but yeah. is, well, it, is well, it clear? Yeah, there is, um, you, you know, I think in the last couple of years, there was a little bit of a pause in March, 2020, when people didn't know exactly what's happening. And then clearly, you know, digital benefited, all flavors of digital benefit yes. through that process. And that's both B2B and BAC. And so all, many of our B2B software companies, especially application companies, had you know what I what I would describe as a COVID pull forward, and yeah. in fact we wrote a report on this that shows, I think it was something like seventy percent of public companies actually accelerated their growth in twenty one versus twenty, and like that's very rare. Like to have companies increasing their growth rate, and so it wasn't it was a systemic benefit. You know the the rising tide was lifting all software boats. That also covers up sin. He's like, oh, like, hey, I was growing 30%. I'm on 40% now. I'm awesome, right? Well, uh, the comp that's coming up in Q3, the Q2 is probably the last year where you have this benefit this quarter right now where you're looking at year over year saying, okay, well, let's see how it goes. Like Q2 21 was was probably the peak of COVID pull forward. So some projects, you know, got eventually procured in Q3, Q4. 22 doesn't have that benefit. Calendar year 22 does not have that benefit now. So um, you know, as the tide's going out, both from a potential recession and then the COVID pull forward, because it's going to normalize, people are starting to look at two-year growth rates, three-year growth rates to try to normalize this. But it's important for companies to have a sense of like, hey, just because I grew 30% last year, I, I may not be able to do 30% this year. And so yeah. management teams and, and CFOs, CEOs, and, and heads of sales need to figure out right now what is what is really sustainable you know, they all want to grow really quickly, but was last year kind of, did last year, how much of the benefit was COVID? And then therefore, what what might happen this year? Because it's very hard in a, in a shaky environment to figure out how much is market, how much is execution, yeah. if it is sales leadership, right? And it's like, it's like whack-a-mole, like, oh, well, blah, 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 you know, like, and, and trying to figure out like the, the components. And so the, the COVID piece is an important component of the market side so that folks can have that intellectual debate of, okay, Listen, we benefited last year. We're doing fine, but it doesn't mean we can go triple the sales team this year because we benefited last year. Johnny, can we stay here for just a second on economic sure. headwinds? So, yeah. all right. So now back it up with we're coming off a COVID bump, and now, like, I'm sure you've got it figured out better than anybody that I know. But are we going to have a recession? What's going to happen to inflation? I'm not asking you to answer those questions, but there's economic headwinds that are clearly out there. Um, What are you seeing out in the marketplace? Um, I'm assuming capital markets are going to be more difficult. Um, uh, I'd like to understand that, what, what you think about that. And then therefore, what advice are you giving to your companies? And what should an employee that's sitting out there you know, hearing how their company is responding, laying people off or what have you. Can you give us a little reality check of uh, dis- discussions that you're having insight on economic headwinds? 
Yeah, sure. So, look, I mean, first of all, if I, if I could, could predict some of this, I wouldn't be talking to you guys. I'd be asking I know. My head <laughs> and, Me neither, dude. Me yeah, neither. So my, I'll give you my, my general. Be talking to Jerome Powell, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. My general sense is, you know, as I said, we've definitely enjoyed a, a nice bull market. Um, the level of, of fiscal monetary stimulus has really benefited all of us. That tide is going out, um, arguably going out late. And... Uh, it's gonna it's gonna create headwinds for for companies and that's that's okay you know um, so the the selling environment I expect to get tougher you know um, and we have to we have to respond to that uh, uh, kind of on our side and so what so that's kind of one component the other component is like well we've also had a very interesting set of capital markets the last few years where some of my companies did not only raise once in a year some of them yeah. raised three times in the same year, like yeah. CBC, d &E, the same year, you know, and they're yeah. sitting on 200, 300, $400 million of cash on their balance sheet. And so I go to, I go to my company and say, look, I don't think there's like a one size fits all answer on what you should do. Um, I think it's very dependent on how much capital do you have? You need to have multiple years of cash. Like if you don't have multiple years of cash, okay, then we need to talk about what are we do. You need to win your market ultimately, as we talked about before. If you're not, and if you don't end up being number one or two, the whole thing was a waste of ten years. So you, you gotta like, you gotta make sure you win. So that that means you do want to invest in your business. Um, and so the right level of investment, the right level of burn, is determined by the size of the pie at the end here, the growth, the the, um, the cash that you were able to raise before the music stopped, and if you can if you can grow into that valuation overall. So. Every company, I, I, I try to give specific advice based on their, their exact situation, how much cash they have. Um, but I think having one, a realization that selling is going to be harder, um, that your, your sales cycle is probably elongate, you're probably not growing at the same rate. And so like all the companies are going from like a budget that they made six months ago to like a reforecast right now. And I think that's very healthy uh, based on whatever the leading indicators are. But then look at the burn rate according to those leading indicators and see does it make sense can you get a few years of of runway and if you do execute will you grow into whatever valuation once you raise that what's the percentage of companies that are reforecasting budgets not outlooks or what have you but just budgets what in in rough guesstimates i'd say it's like 80 percent right now 80 percent. yeah i think 80 percent are reforecasting and, and everyone's got a quarterly update anyway like and, and I'd say most companies, even with a, with the create without the greatness, would be doing like, you know, a mid year update. But I think number of companies that are saying, "Hey, is it worth me growing an extra five or ten percent and spending an extra ten, twenty, thirty, forty million dollars in cash to get there?" Or in this environment, should the, given the cost of capital has gone up, should I pull back? And and by the way, when the cost of capital is cheap, when it's basically free the founders and teams are doing all the right things because then if you can invest in an initiative that maybe there's a 5% chance it would work, that's a good trade to make because the cost yeah. is take the shot. If it doesn't work, so what, right? Now when the cost of capital is high, like, wait a minute, should I, should I take that initiative? You know, instead of having 10 bets on the table, should I have four bets on the table that I have a higher confidence in? And let's, let's push off these other bets to maybe 23 or 24 um, you know, and that might be expanding into geos or some other part, whatever it might be. But like, let's focus on these ones that have higher conviction, and we will burn less now, and we'll have more runway. So I think that's kind of the debate and discussion happening in a lot of companies. Yeah.
Congrats. Let's try to switch gears a little bit. So a yeah. lot of companies are moving from annual subscription models to consumption models. I know it's still really early, but based upon what you've seen so far, is there any, you know, learnings that you have for our audience? I mean, you've already said, I think I've read something that you wrote that um, it's prudent to measure strictly defined cohorts in order to figure out which customer segments you know, are healthiest and which customer acquisition motions are worth uh, prioritizing. So have you, you, you see any early lessons on, you know, moving from subscription to consumption? Overall, I'm, I'm generally bullish on consumption and the impact it has on software. So we just kind of take a hundred thousand foot level in every wave of like major software change. Um, the software market has grown dramatically, you know, whether for mainframe to client server, client server, to kind of the initial version of SaaS, you know, SaaS to cloud, mobile, the markets have grown, like the use cases for software have grown. And what I think is interesting about consumption is that you're getting closer to the value prop with the customer. And, and you know, we've seen this with AWS as they've grown to consumption, lower prices, their growth has been phenomenal, you know, and it's being used in so many different areas. And so I think that broadly speaking, consumption is, is good for software markets and it's not fully appreciated in terms of, you know, could it 5X or 10X, whatever this current software spend actually is. Because people feel very good about, okay, I'm spending, I see the value and there's not this like, oh, like, oh am I really getting value or not? So I think consumption is a good thing. Consumption's impact on how a business runs is I think really in the early days. And we see more in our infrastructure companies and our application software you know, application tends to be a little more per seat basis, but I think that will also move to some element of consumption. Right. But in infrastructure, it's, uh, it's definitely having a dramatic impact in how sales reps are commissioned. I think, frankly, even how the rep, the rep profile might change over time because commission, consumption requires a more consultative, multi-year perspective you know, relationship with your customer. And some sales models encourage that and some don't, you know, and... Having people who can be who can build small, start small, and then grow from there. How exactly are they comped? Uh, what's the relationship between them and account management? All that is kind of up for grabs, and all that's getting redefined. But I think ultimately it requires people who are a little more consultative and team oriented within software companies, because at the days of like you know the the rainmaker showing up, selling the big deal, kind of moving on, going away, <laughs> like those days are different. Yeah, those days are gone. Uh, right. so it's a different person now, and I, I think it's net positive, but. It's important for folks to realize that these are slightly different skills and they need to, you know, to kind of build them out. Yeah, you called it account management. I think about it, it's like client success comes into, plays a really big role in consumption. The way that I think about it, when we were selling perpetual licenses, essentially you had, if the customer bought like millions of dollars worth of software, you had a long time to fix their problems. Yes. Then came annual subscriptions. And now you essentially had, if you stretched it all the way out, nine, 10 months to fix some of their problems. Now with consumption, you might have a couple of days or weeks to fix it. So if you don't have instrumentation, telemetry built into your software and a client success people on top of everything that they're doing, you know, you can see a lot of churn. Yes. Yeah. And especially in this economic environment, I think everyone feels like large companies feel like they've over procured on software. And I think across the board, like, do we really need this? Do we need this now? Can we live without it? And so uh, consumption, because of it's you know, generally month to month or not even contracts necessarily, is allowing people to opt out in a much easier way. Really. What challenges do you see, Niraj, for some of these technical founders? I've met some 
that have this really um, interesting perspective on the software doesn't have to be perfect. Just get it out there. Our customers will give us the feedback. So they have release cycles that are fairly quick and they have more of kind of a fix it out in the field mentality kind of gives me a stomachache a little bit of what you're talking about from a consumption model. Do you see any of that in the marketplace or is that, is that kind of like, is that just, it just can't survive anymore? Yeah, I would say in application software, you definitely see, you know, very high uh, iteration release. Like, I, think, I think, by the way, that's a good thing. Like one of the, one of the things that's underappreciated about the transition to cloud uh, is the really, it's like, it's one of the first times that we've been able to iterate so quickly. Yes. And, and it's like the fast iteration cycles from understanding the problem, trying it, course correcting, like doing it again and again, like you can do it many, many times. That allows a product to get better, you know, very quickly. Whereas in the old days, it was client server once a year, release like, yeah. the, the feedback loops were very different. And, and so sometimes you were totally off. So the cloud enables this rapid iteration, which is really allows there to be more of a fit with, with value, the value with the customer. So I, I think of that as a positive thing in application software, you'll continue to see that. Infrastructure software, generally speaking, the iteration cycles are also fast, but they're very thoughtful about not doing things that, you know, really break systems. You know, like if you have a database, you're not going to ruin your high availability features or something you know, like that. And so I feel like in that case, you, you know, you don't, you don't see kind of mission critical failures, I think from rapid release cycles. I think people are more, more thoughtful about that. Really good. Makes and, sense. Neeraj, you said that, you know, whether you sell mattresses or iPhone cases, what's relevant isn't, you know, how much you sell, but your unit economics. And when you think about the move to consumption, do you think that people will need to measure their captured revenue differently than you know an annual subscription company? I, I think in, in broadly speaking, one of the things that I'm a fan of is taking your, your high-level unit economics, the averages, and really breaking them down into the segments. And so sometimes, you know, hey, what's my magic number? Here's my magic number. But you realize it's like, you know, your magic number in enterprise is really bad, or your enterprise, your magic number in France is terrible, and your, you know, your SMB market. So understanding, like, what are really the investments, and what are the what are the motions that you got? What are the sales motions? You know, usually there's three to five or three to eight in any company. What are the unit economics of each of those motions? Right. And it's okay to have a portfolio, and it's okay for someone the portfolio to not be, you know, hitting the right metrics. But you have a portfolio overall. But most companies don't actually appreciate that there's a portfolio of motions that all have yeah. different economics. And so they're investing a lot over here and they're milking this one over here. That may or may not be the right decision, but they should know that, right? So not having averages, but thinking each of the motions and each of the unit economics. Consumption has a really interesting impact on the unit economics because your, your value of land is always gone up dramatically. And so if you're measuring things in 12-month paybacks, that may not make sense when you have a very high lifetime value now and you have to think about lands and then they're really kind of investment periods for the first year or two to have seven figure per year contracts in years three, four, and five. And so the unit economics need to reflect that. But hopefully the data supports that point of view. And then the comp plans need to line up behind that where you can overpay potentially for lands that will turn into value down the road because you're basically buying annuities over time. But, but, you know, you may not break even in year one or two anymore because of the consumption model. Yeah. I find that a lot of companies don't actually, you know, strictly measure 
you know, different cohorts. And uh, so like you pointed out, they're really missing on a lot of their investments that they're making. Yeah, and especially I would say international, especially I see it, you know, and, and the other thing I would say is that's important. And, and I think you, you've taught me a lot of this is really thinking about just the ramping reps, how they're doing the marginal reps. That's the other part where independent of the motions, really understanding the ramp and ramping and the attainment level overall. Um, a lot of times teams are okay with very low attainment rates. You know, I'm like thinking like 20% of the reps are hitting their numbers, but the company's doing fine because those 20% do a lot. Right. And that's like, you know, that that comes back to roost at some point, right? And so when your company's reputation is not based on reasonable team, no one's gonna get like anyone wants to get to 70, 80%, but even if you can get to 50%, but you got to get to the right levels of attainment to build the right reputation in the in the sales community. I, I often tell my founders that look, you may not realize this, you can keep churning and churning through reps. But once your reputation in the sales community goes from being like a great company to like, hey, you can't go there to make money, you're toast. I don't right. care what your product does, you're toast. Sure. And so you've got to think of your reputation there. And that signals back to like, what is an acceptable level of attainment? And what level of, of my reps are doing well? And how do I make sure that it's, that, that it's okay? Churning and burning reps is, is a long-term problem for, for companies. And technical founders, I think, don't sometimes appreciate that. Sales leaders, you know, understand it, but um, they can't sometimes convince the technical founders of this topic. Yeah, a lot of times they don't even look at the granular level of how, you know, what's the overall productivity of my sales force? What's the inside people doing? What are the mid-market people doing? What are the enterprise doing? And then by region in each one of those groups, which yes. ones are doing well? Which ones are doing not so well? Which ones do I need to boost? You know, which ones do I need to invest in or not invest in? I mean, it's a lot to learn from those types of things. So Nearest, let's talk, um, is a popular rule of 40, yeah. which you know of, but you know, for our listeners, maybe they don't know what it is. It's basically that SaaS companies combined growth rate and profit margin should exceed 40%. Now you said that you prefer looking at, let's call it 30%, you know, next 12 months revenue growth and grouping different companies based upon whether they're above or below that 30% NTM, you know, revenue growth. Can you educate our audience on two things? One, why is the rule of 40 so popular? And then why do you like to also look at the 30% NTM revenue growth factor? Yeah, sure. And, and um, so rule of 40 is, is like, actually it's one of the uh, most elegant ways to think about the trade-off between growth and EBITDA. I used to, I used to tell people way back when, it's like every board meeting basically comes down to like where on the spectrum of like growing really fast or generating a lot of profit. Do you want to set the dial for the company? And that's yeah. based on the market opportunity. You know, can you be number one? You got to win your market still, right? So, and, and so you take your growth rate percentage um, and you take your EBITDA percentage or, or free cash flow percentage of different versions, add them up, and ideally they're running 40. So you can grow 50% and lose 10%. You could grow 30% and make 10%. or but salesforce.com historically over many, many years, they've grown 20% and 20% profit. And that's a lot of what rule of 40 came. Like 2020 was a nice spot in the middle of the land for you know, medium growth companies. Um, and so in what sometimes happens in venture, companies' growth rates slow down. They start growing 30%. They, they hope they could get back up to 50%. Often doesn't happen, but they're still willing to burn 20, 30, 40%. 
Right. And when cost of capital is cheap, they're like, ah, it's okay. But now when cost of capital is not cheap, you really got to look at that investment and say, like, are, are we really going to be able to inflect growth? Are we going to get to 40% growth and zero? Or do we need to start thinking in our heads like, hey, listen, we might need to be a 20, 20 and 20 company. And the private equity teams have all figured this out that basically all software companies can kind of get there. And if the management team, the current management team doesn't want to do it, we'll go do the hard work and figure it out. Um, and we'll buy this company. And, and it's unfortunate for the existing investor because that value is getting transferred to the private equity guys. So um, it's an important framework to have. It's a good framework. It keeps people uh, grounded and disciplined on what other companies can do and what's possible in their own business. Yeah. The framework that I've added to it is really, it's not, uh, it's not a, a, a competitive framework. It actually just says that within rule of 40, there's actually four different zones um, within the rule of 40 and that you could be growing um, and it kind of separates out the 30% growers and the less than 30% growers and those that are free cash flow positive and those are not. And it shows a kind of a map of those. And, and then it really digs into it. Well, those people that are actually growing above 30% and free cash flow positive, what, what do they look like? You know, what is their, and a metric that I really like um, is revenue per employee or ARR per employee. I think there's a lot of um, value in companies really tracking that to get a sense of the just high level efficiency. So you can look at companies that are that are top quartile in, in my four zones, and you'll see they might run ARR per employee at four to $500,000 per employee. And the ones that are in the least in the fourth quartile, the worst quartile might be running at 200 to 300 of ARR per employee. And so just understanding how you got to grow your ARR per employee over time is a really important thing, I think, for founders and leadership teams to understand. But Rule 40 is a good metric overall, John. And I think more and more people and more boardrooms are really talking about it right now. Yeah, especially right now, right? Because like you said, the cost of capital and, and maybe taking that growth rate down a little bit, right? So, yeah. Hey, um, let's go all the way back to the first question. When you looked at all of these parameters and all your experience when you're going to invest, is there one item where it's like your hot pan issue? Oh, shit. I've seen that before. I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> is there, of all those parameters you look at, maybe there's not. Maybe you, you know, are melding them all together in your mind and then making a decision. But is there any one where you think, oh, that's a hot pan, I'm not touching that one? You, I would say earlier in my career, I would say, hey, you know, maybe this person isn't totally fully the person that I want to back, but I can solve that with a lower valuation in the deal, <laughs> you know? And because there were four things, right? There's like, market, there's team, there's product, and there's deal. And sometimes you're like, okay, if the deal is good enough, maybe I should do this. And now I see, look, life's too short. You know, if, if this isn't a person that I want to back from beginning to exit, they don't have the right coachability and scalability in my mind. You know, it's, it's, it's probably time to, time to move on and look at other investments. You know, I, I meet with 100 companies a year that have been whittled down by my team, maybe by, from 1,000 to 100. I, I make one or two investments. And so I have the ability, you know, I have the luxury of saying no to companies that don't, don't check all the boxes. So I would say the people who I spend time with, I've, I've become a, a much more uh, disciplined and, and willing to pay a little higher price if I have to, to work with who I, people who I think are going to be exceptional for the next 10 years. Yeah. And do you think cool. that our, just one final one on that, yeah. John, do you think that our listeners, mostly, you know, sales, marketing type people, do you think that they should evaluate joining a startup 
any differently than the way that you do? Certainly is there's a whole employee side, employee benefits and all that, but. Yeah, um, it's a great question, John. I, I, I meet with a lot of executives and, you know, I say, look, I, I'm, I've got a portfolio approach and this is, this is my level of selectivity. Yes. You're investing your life and your time. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't work at four different companies. You work at one company. And so the bar is even higher for you, right? Yeah. And many times what happens is like, they're like, wait, I met with four or five companies and I picked this one, you know, and that's, that's good. But I say, wait, I just want you to compare it to my funnel, right? My funnel literally, it'll be roughly, we at Battery, we meet with 6,000 companies a year and we make 20 investments. A partner level person meets with a thousand of those 6,000, you know, and I'm one of 10 partners. So let's say roughly, and I meet with more companies than most, but I probably meet with 200 companies a year, right? And I'll make two investments. And so, and I, I meet with companies, and, and but of those 200, I'll probably spend a ton of time, like with probably somewhere between 20 and 30 of those companies, like a ton of time. And so my advice to, Sales executives is like, hey, just be picky. Oh, and oh, by the way, almost all of my investments, I am the one calling the company. I just want to pause on that, okay? Yeah. I am the one calling the company. Most executives, they don't have the benefit of a team, right? Recruiters are very good at what they do. They call them, right? I was like, okay, maybe half your companies or should be from the inbound, but at least half your company should be outbound, companies that you're spending time with. And that's going to kick off a lot of thinking of like, well, what, what type of company, what space, what sales model, as opposed to being reactive to what's happening. And then all of a sudden you get swept up. And by the way, these founders are very, they're very magnetic, right? They're intoxicating. They're fun to be with. It's hard to say no once you get kind of into the process. So I think being very selective, thinking about space that you want to be in proactively, just like an investor, because you're investing your time, which arguably is more valuable than than my than my money, right? Um, and then just and just picking, you know, be taking your time. Don't let just the first thing kind of come in, uh, because uh, what I've generally found is people are less selective than they could be, and and honestly, they do a little less diligence on market than I think they should. Right. And many times, yeah. the operator will say, "Hey, I see this problem, that problem. They're hiring this profile. I know what the profile should be. I just need to grow the profile." And voila, we'll be growing again. Yeah. But, but the market is an important component here. Like the market is, is going to constrain you to what you can do and really understanding your space well, like an investor would, I think is a, is a skill that's probably not as well developed and, and leaders probably because they don't have the time and the resources to go do it. But, but I think also it's just the, the mindset isn't fully there. Right. It's such a good point because I'll get a call from some people and they want to talk about a company they're thinking about joining. And I say, well, how did you... Uh, come about this company. A recruiter called me. I said, well, are you looking at any other companies? They'll say no. And I think, wow, that's unbelievable. You're not really going to go out there and, and investigate. And to your your other point, Niraj, you get to make a portfolio of, of, of investments. Whereas most of our listeners, we get one, you get one shot and you've you know, been so successful in a wide range of investments from like a place called Mom to Wayfair to Glassdoor and Sprinklers. So, um, yeah, our listeners don't have, let's call it that luxury or that yeah. that problem. You know, it's so, even worse, John. It's even worse than that, John, because like what happens is for whatever reason, when people look at resumes, they overemphasize your most recent experience. Yeah. Right. It's like, it might take up 80% of the discussion. 
that company you joined might have been a dud before you even joined. But somehow that's like on you now, right? Yes. And if you're good, you can talk through it. But like, whereas as an investor, I've got a portfolio. Yeah, some aren't going to work. I'm not going to talk about those. Let's talk about the good ones. You know, I, I have enough stuff to talk about that I can kind of get through those bumps. But as a as a as a high pro, high potential executive, your moves are so important, and the downside of, of picking poorly is so massive that it makes no sense not to allocate the time and energy to properly diligence the things that are in front of you. My, my take. No, I think you're so right. You're so right, Cap. You Johnny, something. Johnny, you brought the you brought the big brain out. I brought him out. I, got I him. want. Neeraj, is it Cornell? It's Cornell and Harvard, right? That that is true. Yes. Okay, it's Cornell and Harvard. So I want. I'm going to do a recap here, and I want some Cornell and Harvard credit for having to follow along with your big brain and take these notes. So I'm going to give it a shot on a summary here. The first thing we talked about, we talked about four key critical areas that you look at. You talked about market, team, product, and then uh, the actual constructs of the deal. <clears throat> you focused a lot on where market and team come together. And I love how you, you redefine for me the total addressable market. And everybody talks about a total addressable market. And you introduced the concept for me of the timing of that addressable market. And you introduced this concept of inflection point um, and how difficult it is. And all this stuff we're saying I'm translating to, I don't care if you're investing in a company or if you're trying to pick a company to go to, these are all incredibly valid points. You talked about capturing markets in transition because I was thinking, okay, well, how do you guess and how do you not guess, but how do you use data and look at an inflection point? And you talked about looking for capturing markets in transition and you gave some, you gave some examples of that. You also talked about the difficulty in looking at new markets, and you kind of said, beware a little bit. There's no buyer history. There's no budget history. There's no use history. And you said, you kind of gave the, you know, beware, look for ways to move it from going from the gut to data-driven analysis about what's going on there. I selfishly asked you about blockchain because I've been trying to figure out how to invest in that doggone technology for several <laughs> years. And I'm going to stay close to you, my man, and you're going to help me with that one because I believe uh, I believe that's in my future. We talked about the importance of understanding the difference between product and sales. You gave analogies of time. You've been at this so long. You're, you know, client server days. Um, sales could carry a company a little bit easier in the client server days. And then the cloud uh, began to focus on the use of software. Um, and you talked about growth um, can cover up a lot of sins. You got to ask when you're growing. I thought this is great advice. A lot of people don't do it. When we're growing at our highest is the best time to look at what is actually not working to make sure that we're not missing or creating any of these sins right under our very uh, noses. Um, you wrote a couple of blogs that we're going to put into the uh, into our notes. You wrote uh, Founders and CEO Transition blog, Founders to CEO, and we'll make sure that we add that to our show notes. I did take a look at that. Um, I thought it was awesome content. You also wrote T2D3 blog, uh, and you were talking about when founders 
um, actually find a way to work themselves out of the sales motion. And the goal is when your B reps can deliver. I thought that's such great advice. When you have built a go to motion, a go to market and motion strategy that allows the technical founder to be out of the sales motion, not only that, but the B reps can deliver on their number. Um, we talked about more depth around founders and looking for people. You talked about historically, again, they used to be in their upper 30s. Now they're in their mid to upper 20s. And with that, you see some areas of opportunity with the people side of the business. And so you're looking for empathetic characteristics. You're looking for coachability. You're looking for what you call the HR principles, which are you know the ability to recruit and build relationships with other people. Interesting to me, you said on average, it can take, um, you know, sometimes it can take as much as three tries to get the right leadership team in place. So when I'm out there looking at leadership teams that are changing in the early stages, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That could be this getting it right with this mix of people to balance out the one of the core four tenants uh, of your portfolio analysis around, you know, the importance of the team. Uh, you talked about two types of failures. Uh, the easy ones are where the market didn't make it, no harm, no foul. But you said the ones that sting the most is when somebody just beat us out and where we just couldn't make number one or number two. And you also talked about that being incredibly important. If you're not number one or number two, you're wasting your time. You also talked about looking for resilience in companies because I was asking about economic headwinds. And you kind of helped me redefine it. You said, look, even with COVID, the last 12 years has been pretty much a bull market. So we don't have a lot of experiences with economic headwinds. Um, and so you said to be on the lookout for selling environments, toughening up, really being, you know, really specific on your value proposition. Sales cycles are going to be longer. And you said bottom line is it's no different than it was when you started 30 years ago or 40, what, 30, you're young. So 30 years ago, you said you can't sell software without a champion 30 years ago. You can't sell software without a champion 30 years from now. So that's something that you're, it's just kind of a good metric that you'll always look at. Some companies have done recapitalizations and, and, um, and they're sitting on a lot of cash and you're looking for that cash to have like a two-year runway. Uh, and then obviously you got to win your market. So we were at, we were talking about things to look out for, for economic headwinds. So if you're sitting in a company, they're sitting on cash, they're, they're investing in ways to win the market, to be number one or number two. If you're inside that company, you should understand that. You also gave me the heads up, which I haven't seen yet, but, um, it's interesting to me that you're saying this, that 80% of the people that you're dealing with are actually reforecasting, reforecasting budgets, which make sense to me. So with the cash, you'll start to see your companies, both the ones you invest in and the ones our listeners might be involved in, they're going to start to analyze how to make big bets and really prioritize those big bets. Instead of multiple big bets, it's probably going to be reprioritized in the face of some of these economic headwinds. We moved on to the consumption model, Johnny, and we talked about, you know, the consumption model gets very, very close to the ultimate value proposition for the customer. This really got my mind spinning. So go back and listen to what we talked about when we talked about consumption. 
because what Niraj is giving us all is advice on, no matter what you do in the future, you better start to get better at some of these things because it's going to be the future of selling. And so consumption's impact on how a company is run, sales commissions, rep profiles to more consultative, longer-term focus, I would just say, start selling that way now. So there's no transition for yourself if you're listening to this. We moved on to economic, economic headwinds. Uh, and you talked about the importance to break down the segments into the portfolios of the sales motions, which I thought was so really profound. We hear about top level numbers, but there's so many different motions in many of our uh, companies that we interact with. And again, some of those sins can be covered up in some of the overall, in some of the, uh, the overall numbers. Um, consumption timeframes, you talked about the timeframes will probably change, leads to expanded timeframes from a consumption perspective. Talked about attainment and the, the, some of the things to look out for on you know, the reputation of attainment. I think this is such great advice because I've, I've heard this before and I think it gets underplayed. You know, when you have 20% of your reps that are making their number, you have a reputation out in the marketplace of a high churn because the rest of people aren't going to stay. If only 20% of the reps are making their number, you can get a reputation for poor attainment. And that rep, you might not even know you have that reputation out in the marketplace and it can eat you alive. The last few things we talked about was the rule of 40. Uh, and you talked about the four zones of investing. Uh, and go back and listen to this, folks, because I thought it was really, really interesting. You added your breakdown of the rule of 40 into those four zones. And you also added an important metric around ARR per employee was a critical was a critical metric. Last thing we talked about is, and I want my certification at the end of this, McMahon. I want my certification. When you pick a company, Outbound focus. This one ripped my face off, Niraj. It ripped my face off because you said your outbound focus should be higher than your inbound focus, meaning you're getting recruited. There's a war on talent. Don't get lazy and just listen to recruitment agencies are fantastic. They're fantastic people. I'm not saying anything disparaging about that, but your responsibility is to apply these principles that we learned today and get yourself focused on an outbound focus to start to evaluate uh, these companies. Spend more time on the market like an investor is really, really great advice on how to pick a great company. How'd I do? That's I impressive. have five things that I thought you were definitely going to forget and I had to cross them off my list. So yes. <laughs> yes. I want my honorary battery ventures degree, Niraj. I want you got it. it. Stamp it You're the man. Hey, brother, we're going to have a little fun here and we're going to do uh, just uh, to get to know you a little bit better. Johnny's going to ask you some rapid fire questions and then we're going to let you get back to your 72 different boards that you sit on. <laughs> Niraj, you ready? What's your ideal day off of work? Oh, ideal day off, it's got to be, you know, kind of on a boat, scuba diving, somewhere warm, you know, ending mm. it with a nice cocktail with the sunset. I'd say that's the ideal day off. Do you do well, the actual scuba with a tank on your back? Yeah, yeah, I can say scuba. Oh. You know? Hi, Niraj, I didn't know that you did that either. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, I mean, I'm not like, you know, like, you know, super advanced, but enough to go out there and have fun, you know, checking it out. Nice. What's the last one you did? What's the last dive you did? Um, oh gosh, I've been all over, but I'm, I'm, 
I'm planning a dive right now to go to Hawaii with my uh, my son who's in the process of getting certified. So that'll be that'll be fun. So hopefully in a few weeks we'll be doing that. Awesome. Great. How about your favorite meal? Favorite meal. Um, I you know I'm a sucker for Boston uh, shellfish. I love row 34 oysters. Um, you know, sitting on their deck, just kind of having a beer and great oysters. It's oh, 34 uh, down in the seaport, down the seaport. Yeah. And if you can, uh, if you ever get lucky enough to go to an oyster farm and have a, have a meal with some oyster farm out on the water down the Cape or something, that's I've done that. That's a great experience. Yeah. How about your favorite movie? Favorite movie? Ah, God, jeepers. Uh, a beautiful mind is what he's going to say. Right, Johnny <laughs> Mac? <laughs> Say, uh, you, you know, I, I don't know. I've got some, so, so many interesting movies. I, um, you know, I'll tell you, uh, the U S open just came through Boston and, uh, I, I took my kids and, uh, there's a movie that, uh, was played that, that was around golf called the greatest game ever played. Yeah. It's about, uh, Francis Great one. who's an amateur golfer and, uh, won the U S open and, uh, I really like that movie. That, to me, you know, I wanted to show my kids. Like, first of all, he grew up in a humble, humble background and was able to work hard and kind of get there. And uh, I thought that was awesome. So I think a lot of good values to the kids and had to do with the U.S. Open, which we just had in Boston. Yeah. How about you? Have, you have a best concert you've ever been to? Oh, uh, I'm going to date myself, John. So my my first concert was going to U2 in high school. I think <laughs> the Netherlands. So that was that was, and it's hard to top that one. So I'd say that was my favorite. All right, I got to throw one in here. You bet your favorite hockey team. Boston Bruins, baby. Go leave. <laughs> All right, Cap, you want to ask the last one and wrap it up? Yeah, Niraj, do you, um, uh, is there any favorite charity that you have? You know, there's um, there's a nonprofit that I'm working with right now that I'm, I'm very excited by. It's a, it's a group called Hack Diversity. They're um, actually headquartered here in Boston. Did you say uh, hacked university like hackers dot diversity? Yeah. Um, and you know, I, um, one of the things I, I'm really excited by the, the impact tech has had broadly speaking on the markets, you know, we're all, we're all beneficiaries of the shift to digital. You know, I, I, um, I feel really, uh, it bothers me that it's not the opportunity hasn't been shared by everyone, you know, and the yeah. digital divide topic is, is one that we can talk about things that have happened in the past. But this digital divide, this is happening on our watch, right? This yeah. isn't someone else's problem. This is our problem. And yeah. uh, what Hack Diversity does is it really uh, reaches out to um, various kind of uh, uh, talent sources to help technical folks break into the technical community, break into the innovation economy within Boston. And now they're expanding into other markets. And uh, every year they have 100 or so interns uh, that that get placed in some uh, amazing company and many of them get full-time offers afterwards and awesome this impact on the trajectory of those lives and the, their families going forward and so um, hopefully we can continue to expand uh, the opportunity set for, for everyone to enjoy this kind of rising tide in digital awesome. dude that's awesome we'll make sure we put we'll reach out to you get the exact link and we'll put that in the show notes and thank you for doing what you do out in the community and and Niraj, so great to see you, dude. We uh, we value your relationship, not only for us at Force Management and all the great things that you've done for us and with those portfolio companies, but thanks for taking the time. It's uh, it's just awesome, awesome to to spend time with you. Yeah, I'm ha happy to do it. And, uh, you know, one thing I, I do want to mention, just I, I really appreciate you guys doing this and, and giving back to the community, having me on, um, you know, helping the next generation, I think is part of all of our responsibilities. And, and uh right. 
this is a great forum to just share advice and, and nuggets. And, you know, one of the things that 22 years ago, I think is when I got to meet uh, McMahon on Blade Logic and, and seeing kind of like what actually is sales as a system. And I think both of you have really created a system and I had a, had the benefit of learning it at that stage. And I've seen the network of talent that you've all touched. And I, I assess someone's reputation and value. And like, I think my own life, like I'll think about like, who are the people that I helped to develop over the years? And I think about the amazing leaders you both have developed and it's like awesome, awesome what you've all, what you've all done. And I, I do think very much that you guys are like unsung heroes of like the software revolution. Like people don't, people like me appreciate what you've done. I don't think the broader market does, uh, but you've had a tremendous impact in really thinking of sales as something that's not just some like voodoo magic, but there's a system. And if you hire right, you put in the right system, you can complement that with product and build great companies. And, you know, to me, that's a great um, set of intellectual property to give back to the next generation and has a, has a huge impact on, on my companies and my founders. So thank you for, for everything you guys are doing. And uh, I'm glad we're able to spend some time together. Yeah. Thanks, Nears. It's exactly yeah, why we're doing the podcast to try to, you know, answer a lot of questions that we had when we were younger and no one could really answer for us. So it's, it's, it's a way to give back to the, to the community. So Hey, thanks so much for doing this. We're very thankful. I'm really grateful. I'm sure our audience is very grateful. And uh, dude, it's great to see you again. Awesome seeing you so, both. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. So I can't wait to see you again. Thanks and a lot. Thank, awesome, and thank you all for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 